Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and this week on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last week that will get to the kinds of answers that hopefully you can apply to what your institution's international education strategy is. And as we go through today's uh, Roundup. We want to invite you to participate on all of our different uh, platforms. We're live across YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter now for SMIE Consulting, and we're looking forward to hearing from you today. Uh, but the three questions we're going to attack today are three. Our first, how do you act, how do you crack a nut like China? Second, is a national strategy for international education a necessity? And third, which country is most important for the United States in terms of international education? So those are the questions that we'll be asking and answering today, and we invite your participation in those. And as we go through today's uh, questions, those of you who are familiar with the Roundup uh, will know that we take our questions from the news stories that we publish each week in the SMIE consulting newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share, and that stands for Social Media and International Education News, for those unfamiliar with the, uh, the newsletter. Now, that uh, dropping the link to our, both our website, uh, where you can uh, subscribe to uh, the to the uh, newsletter uh, from our website directly. Hit the subscribe button. That'll get you added to the mailing list. So you'll get it in your inbox every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. We're also going to drop this week's edition of that email newsletter that you can get, as well as our LinkedIn version. Same content, just a different format. If you that's the way you digest your uh, work-related news, uh, you have that link as well in the chat. So please do take advantage of those uh, so that you can begin uh, to get a head start on what we're going to discuss each week here on the Midweek Roundup. And as we do each week, we want to thank those of you who join us live. Uh, we know everyone is busy this time of year uh, in the middle of a recruitment season. Uh, applications are starting to pour in, reading what's going on. Uh, I know we have a, a, a number of Education USA advisors that are, are subscribing to the newsletter, watching our podcasts, uh, watching our live chats, or subscribing to our podcasts. <laughs> And I'm grateful to all of you who are uh, joining the family here at SMIE Consulting to get, uh, get our, our takes on what's, uh, what's happening in our business in international education. And so let's get right into the first question of the day. Uh, we're talking today about uh, the first topic of uh, how do you crack a nut like China? And this is a multi-layered question, obviously, because we uh, China is a, such an important uh, partner in international education, shall I say, uh, and it has, there's been good years, there's been bad years, there's been more bad than good years recently with a decline in the enrolling a number of undergraduate Chinese students in particular uh, from behind the Great Wall. And what we found, uh, what many of us have found on campus is those that has been a declining population. And it's how do we convince administrators at our institutions that we shouldn't give up on China. Uh, and that seems to be a battle that's going on on a number of different campuses now. Uh, had the president of a university, a large Pac-12 Pac university, asked me, uh, do we, should we even be doing uh, recruiting in China anymore? And this was back in, uh, I think, the summer of 2019. And that, uh, that's, a, that's an attitude that's a little bit scary when you hear that from a university president, because we know uh, uh, that uh, their influence on, 
on how an institution carries itself out and where its institution's priorities are can be uh, quite impactful. And as I made the case back then in 2019, I'd make it again, the same case again today. It's our largest, right now, it's our largest source of international students. Now, whether that will continue long-term is another question entirely, but outside of India and China, there aren't any other huge markets out there that we can, will even come within half of those, what those two represent uh, for U.S. institutions in terms of student uh, recruitment. So uh, the Forbes article that I've uh, dropped the link in the chat uh, covers a, a wide range of, app, app, uh, of topics. It says uh, the top theme is decline in, Ch is in Chinese student visas paints a bigger picture of U.S.-China relations. And I think, as I always do with my, uh, my comments uh, related to, uh, uh, to international education in the United States, is one of our biggest downfalls is we don't have a real good perspective on the larger picture questions that are affecting individual relationships with countries, but also the U.S.'s position in the world and of international student mobility and how other political governmental changes uh, impact our uh, policies here in the United States and our perceptions here in the United States. So uh, what I want to do is make that point again today uh, on perspective uh, and how important that is in our overall view of the situation happening in China. We have kind of two, two waves of this going on here. We have uh, opinion in China has soured over uh, the last five or six years uh, in relation to the public perception in China of the United States. There's been a couple of different uh, surveys done. Uh, 2021 Chinese public opinion survey found 33% of respondents' view of the U.S. was very unfavorable, while another 29% described their view as unfavorable. So combined, that's over 62% of the Chinese population, according to this public opinion survey, viewed the United States as either favorable, unfavorable or very unfavorable. But there's also a, a, a different opinion by those that have studied or traveled to the United States, uh, indicating that, uh, that the Chinese media, uh, heavily controlled by the government there, uh, does influence negative perception in China of how the U.S. is viewed, and much like how some pieces, parts of the U.S. media have inflated, uh, conflated uh, the, the entire COVID-19 uh, COVID, uh, pandemic within blaming China for that, with uh, uh, the rise uh, and the public perception around anti-Asian hate, and there, uh, much like we had post-9-11, where there was anti-Muslim hate uh, going on in the United States, uh, there, that anti-Asian hate that has impacted not just Chinese uh, citizens or uh, Chinese Americans, but also m many uh, students and of, from either from Asia or from uh, have eth uh, East Asian heritage in their families. So that uh, public perception is, 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 a, is a real thing, and it's, it does impact student flows. Uh, from the Chinese end, you've had the, uh, the battles, uh, political battles with with the U.S. administrations from President Trump, and even today with President Biden, uh, you see tensions are there on a number of different issues, particularly human rights. Now, from the U.S. side of, of, of in their perspective on China, uh, we see a lot of different issues with issues with Uyghur Muslims and how uh, there's talk of universities divesting. Uh, from companies that are doing business or uh, uh, helping support uh, the subjugation of the weaker people in China. 
Uh, there's been a number of different uh, factors uh, we've seen recent with recent events in August. Uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan inflamed tensions there. I uh, mentioned uh, anecdotally that we had a, a training for uh, agents uh, for one of our partners in China, and we had listed our top five countries. And at the time, that list, uh, and still does, it includes Taiwan. But the, the agents on, our, on the Chinese side were very offended by this, and we, uh, they, they said that we cannot show this presentation to, to other agents or to our to families because it mentions Taiwan, and Taiwan's part, part of China. I explained, hey, it's the same thing with Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong's a, a special administrative region. It's, they have separate passports, as do the people from Taiwan, so we, they are counted separately. That's just the nature of the beast. That's the world reality, the realpolitik that we live in, a world we live in. And so that, but that wasn't enough to satisfy their concerns. And then in the United States now, you've had a number of uh, circumstances, a number of cases over the last couple of years where uh, Chinese students who are in the United States and who are, are being exposed to other ideas that uh, their governments find offensive uh, or uh, are, find that are certainly at odds with uh, what the government wants the Chinese population to understand things like uh, Uyghur Muslims and positions on inviting uh, China speakers to campus that have particularly anti-communist uh, party uh, views from China uh, that they have been suppressed in some ways. That uh, they have uh, there's a, a public strategy now uh, that, that is emerging at some campuses to protect. Chinese students who are feeling pressure from perhaps the Chinese embassy in the United States, from their Chinese student and scholar associations that might have be seen as arms of the of the government, Chinese government on campuses. So uh, from Confucius Institutes, there's been all those battles going on as well. So for for us on the university side, we as as we have balancing acts to perform on, on our own uh, in terms of. Uh, we know we want to continue to receive students from China because they are a consistent uh, a source of uh, diversity on our campuses, that they provide uh, a perspective that we want our current students to have on the world around them. Uh, so there, there's a lot going on here that we think really must be included uh, in, in the larger discussion on what's happening with China. Now, I want to, do want to raise a couple related points on the impact of these relationships that China has with the United States and other countries and how that's potentially hurting them uh, as a country. Uh, we look no further than uh, what's happened um, uh, with China and their, in their, in their pandemic response. Uh, there, there's an article out from Travel Pulse that looks at international study programs uh, in Russia and China. I have just virtually dried up uh, for for many uh, institutions that were looking to send students, for students who were looking to study in those countries, do degrees in those countries, just because uh, in China in particular, the pandemic response uh, hasn't changed much over the last, since it began in, in the early part of 2020. Uh, you still have major cities uh, on lockdown in China uh, happening regularly uh, with, with small outbreaks. You see this zero COVID policy just uh, becoming the norm. And even though vaccines have been readily available uh, and the way the Chinese government has responded to uh, the pandemic hasn't really changed. It's still zero COVID. They're still doing these mandatory lockdowns. They're uh, taking people from their homes and putting them in these uh, uh, recovery camps uh, that are where the conditions are squalid in comparison to what they had. So there's a lot of um, a lot of challenges here going on that uh, 
to, for, for China right now internally, and they are uh, attempting to slowly reopen for international students, but it's, it's not happening at, at a pace that for some reason the students that still want to study there aren't able to get back in in, in the numbers that they, that they would hope to have. Uh, and it's been damaging their reputation. And there's also been prohibitions on student travel uh, in, from within China out. Uh, that's why numbers have been down. That's why there have been so many fewer visas that have been granted uh, to Chinese students. And that's one of the uh, articles that we'll cover today uh, has, has, has revealed. I know it's been covered over the last few weeks and from different outlets, but the, the reality is when the government's travel restrictions are on you, there's a cumulative effect over the, over the, over the months that has publicly depressed the numbers that, uh, uh, of those that are able to get out to come and study. So that's part of the challenge we face now is a, re a reality that we're not just fighting public opinion, we're fighting a government in China that isn't as open to letting their, st letting their citizens, letting their students come to study abroad. Uh, there are various factors in, involved in this mix, but what one of the articles does point out the public perception piece in China uh, for those that aren't don't have that U.S. experience already that don't really understand uh, what's happening in the United States. They're, they're scared off by the gun violence, by the anti-Asian hate, uh, and what they consider a poor response to the pandemic that we've had in, here in the United States. Uh, life goes on, but for for public perception, that's not something we have a lot of control over in terms of how the U.S. is portrayed on Chinese media to people in those country in that country that don't have a great exposure to to the U.S. beyond what the media feeds them. So that's the challenge that we have in terms of cracking that nut. Uh, the other other piece uh, we I mentioned with. Um, uh, uh, how U.S. campuses are responding and trying to protect the Chinese students that are here that might have views that are different from what the Chinese government might uh, wish they would have. Uh, you see a lot of that and uh, a lot of concerns that uh, those students that are speaking out, their families are impacted back home in China, uh, that they're under increased surveillance or even th uh, pressured to, uh, to influence uh, the students' behavior. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of those concerns and uh, on George Washington University's campus, uh, there's a student government resolution, resolution that was put forward recently that uh, Karen Fisher uh, addresses in her one of her recent uh, latitudes, uh, her news, weekly newsletter. And it's, uh, it's a response directly to um, adopt a public strategy to protect students, especially those from mainland China, who, quote, whose right to freedom and of expression and freedom of association are directly threatened and who face overseas monitoring, intimidation, and coercion. So that's uh, an important piece, and they also put in their uh, a request uh, an encouragement to, for the university to divest endowment, endowment holdings in companies with ties to the Chinese government's human rights violations against Uyghur Muslims, as we mentioned earlier. So there's a lot of um, undercurrents to this uh, uh, to this relationship we have with uh, with China, and it's one that is not going to be solved easily. But it, it when you have opportunities to have uh, again the perspective that we're talking about here on what's happening and why it's happening, uh, why why particular particularly in China that uh, there is the reaction we're having, uh, we're seeing, and its impact on student flows and all that. It's some of it's out of our control. A lot of it's in the control of the of the Com Chinese Communist Party. So and the government's restrictions on its populace uh, in terms of movement uh, still impacted by the pandemic. So uh, is it going to be easily solved? No. Uh, is it going to 
uh, require us as a nation, for, as, as institutions who wish to do business in China and continue to receive students from, from that country? Does it require us to be, engage more directly with the students and parents? Uh, yes. And how do you do that? Uh, that's going to involve um, direct communication in ways that um, if you're just sending emails, if you're just relying on your own website and Western social media, you're not getting through. Uh, you need a locally hosted site, you need to be on Chinese social media and have an, an engagement strategy that speaks to them. And have your current students, uh, recent graduates, parents of current students, speak to the topics that will help dispel some of the myths, at least, about how life is on your campus uh, that uh, would not ordinarily be getting through, be getting through the, the, the noise and restrictions that uh, the Chinese government would put on Western media and Western sites. So that's, that's the answer. Uh, it's not easy, but it can be done if uh, you do it correctly and invest the time and energy and resources in, into understanding the market, one, and then uh, reaching them where they are and with messages that are appropriate for them from, from current students, from recent alumni and parents. So those are the ones that are going to prove successful in the longer term. Now, next question. Is a national strategy for international education a necessity? Now, this is a topic that I love to talk about because it's a topic that uh, there's no end of debate. It's one that's been around for a number of years. And when I talk about perspective earlier, this is another one of the, those, those thoughts uh, that's uh, one of those questions that really get you to think about our place in the world in international student enrollment and global, global student mobility. And you look at what other countries have, and it's the grass is always greener type of thing. Um, but in many cases, why it's greener in other countries is because, uh, in terms of international student enrollment strategies and all of that type of thing, is because there is government support out uh, uh, in the form of a national strategy that countries, different countries have adopted and with different motivations. Uh, we've seen uh, the, in the UK the reintroduction of post-study work, uh, two-year post-study work visas uh, in 2020, uh, 20, 2019, excuse me, has led to a rise in the number of uh, particularly students from India that have been coming to specifically to be able to have a pathway to work after study. Uh, you've seen in Canada, immigration is the main driver for, frankly, uh, for, um, for international student enrollments. Uh, that uh, many, many, the country itself has negative birth rates domestically from domestic populations. They're relying in certain provinces. They're, they have huge shortages in, uh, in major jo uh, job areas in, the, in those provinces. Uh, that they are doing everything that they can to sell their provinces as a destination, not only for study, but for, in, for employment and eventually citizenship, permanent residency and citizenship. And streamlining that process is a big reason that Canada's numbers have uh, jumped through the roof in the last decade. Uh, they've had some struggles too recently with their visa study permit process. It's uh, with a lot of delays. They've had uh, and one article we, we will post, we'll share next week in our newsletter uh, that, that they've admitted to uh, what they see as, as, uh, as uh, racism driving student study permit denials for many students coming from Africa. Uh, they've recognized that even a problem in India, which is already their number one market, they've realized that they, their visa denial rates were, were, were higher than they should have been in India uh, for a country that 
uh, represents the number one source for, for students uh, going to, uh, to Canada. Uh, in the United States, we've addressed that issue be, uh, recently with India. We've, we've, we have now a 95% uh, visa, student visa success rate, which is amazing. Uh, about seven, eight years ago, the global average uh, for, the, for U.S. student visa approval rates was about 80%. And to have their, your number two destination market uh, be at 95% now, that's, that's amazing. And that's a great sign of things to come particularly uh, with our relationship to India. But when you look in the bigger context of a national strategy, ours in the United States is very hodgepodge. And we've talked about this before. We certainly mentioned it after uh, the last EduSA forum in August. Uh, there was a session on this topic, a national, uh, uh, the joint statement on international uh, supporting international education by uh, departments of state, commerce, homeland security, and education. Uh, that was signed originally in 2021. It was reaffirmed in 2022. They did a big uh, presentation on what they've done, but all of it has been kind of each department doing their own thing and very little collaboration, other than promoting each other's posts on social media. So uh, there haven't been a lot of concrete changes in terms of government policy in the United States that would reflect anything other than, yes, we support the idea of international education and each department, commerce, uh, homeland security, state, education have varying levels of engagement in that topic of international, bringing international students in and what the impacts of that on the economy, on workforce, on our campuses. Is very, there are different motivations, different priorities, uh, economic in the form of the Department of Commerce uh, and their, their view on it, um, uh, public diplomacy on the, on the part of State Department, security, national security and the term, from the Homeland Security uh, Department. And education probably closely aligns with what true international educators uh, believe as why we bring international students to campus for the cultural benefits for our students to enrich the lives of and their perspectives on the world, which is kind of what I'm talking about here with our perspective as international educators on what's needed. We look at what other countries are doing and we're seeing them moving miles ahead. Uh, the article that I've just shared is from the Pi News. Uh, those, uh, for those familiar, the Pi, one of my favorite sources on international ed news, uh, probably the most uh, I will refer to in any, any given week uh, for our newsletter and, and certainly on the Roundup. Uh, there's rarely a week that goes by that I'm not mentioning the Pi News. But uh, they've just had an event in Toronto, their first uh, Pi Live uh, for North America. And that one, one of the panel discussions was on uh, should the U.S. have a national strategy. Uh, there were folks uh, from, uh, from NAFSA, the President's Alliance on Higher Education and Immigration, uh, a good friend of mine, Sharif Barsoom from uh, NYU, who I've known for many years uh, going back to his days in Indiana. Uh, but uh, there are, in Ohio, uh, and uh, at Vanderbilt, at Ohio State and Vanderbilt, uh, and now at NYU, it's and the the envy uh, from that panel is is palpable in this uh, in this article, and how other countries are clearly doing more. That it would be uh, be more uh, the hope, as Sharif mentioned in his his uh, his his presentation, that uh, that there's there's more specific, more action oriented steps that the U.S. government takes. But until and this is my concern here, until. Uh, until we have in the United States uh, a, a prioritization of international education at the highest level of the federal government. And each individual department that I mentioned only has a very limited scope that they operate in uh, and in terms of how they can impact uh, parts of international education policy. 
uh, DHS can add more uh, STEM designated majors to their approved list. Uh, state can adjust visa policy w in one way or another, but some many times that requires congressional action to have any real lasting and substantial impacts. Uh, there's other other things that commerce can do in terms of promoting U.S. Uh, interests in other countries, uh, but it's again it's financial related. So there's there's not always the common thread that binds everything together, other than. Uh, having a national strategy where they talk a game but they can't implement a game plan because they don't have the authority to do so. It requires, uh, in my opinion, cabinet level leadership where there's an international education, I'm probably not using czar anymore in terms of the appropriate language for this, but a, a, a r really an international ed uh, department uh, or prior or champion uh, as the UK has done uh, in, point, in pointing an international ed champion uh, for uh, their universities and bringing students to the country. So that's what's missing. Um, there are folks that make the case quite strongly that the U.S. should be doing more uh, and can be doing more uh, from a campus-based perspective, that uh, transnational education is um, a something that we do poorly in the United States. So few institutions, I would say less than two dozen, have strong overseas campuses that uh, are and productive campuses that are producing degree recipients uh, every year uh, from overseas. And, and the capacity is, is fairly limited, but they are pr pr providing uh, an idea of what we could be doing. Uh, and you see the NYUs, the Dukes, uh, the Websters in different, in, that have been around for many, many years uh, that have campuses overseas. But those numbers are very small. You see what uh, uh, Education City in Qatar has been. Uh, there's individual programs or units uh, of colleges that are uh, offered there, have programs offered there. But there, it's not a, a, a very, very much a groundswell of hundreds of, of colleges that are doing it. And when you f look at Australia, you look at the UK, you see nearly a majority of, of colleges in those countries, again, their numbers are much smaller, 40, less than 40 in, the, in Australia, less than 200 in the UK of these university level uh, institutions that have programs overseas, uh, half or more are active, actively engaged in transnational education. We don't do a good job of that here. There's, like I said, there's less than 1% of our colleges and universities are actively doing transnational education. Uh, and that's something we can do a better job of, but we need to be willing to invest the time and resources and energy that that's needed to make that happen. Find the right partners overseas that can, uh, is, can where your degrees can be offered uh, directly and work through all the different um, uh, compliance, educational compliance issues, legal compliance issues that you need to make sure you're you're checking the boxes on to make sure that your degree offered in those countries online, or if in, if not in person, is uh, going to be accepted in those countries and uh, 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 is aware of all the tax laws and all the other pieces there. So a very important piece of that discussion is yet to be had in the United States about how we can connect all the dots. Uh, between these different um, different departments and how and who should be responsible for that uh, for that policy uh, for an, an international education policy they're not and I, I'll be honest with you they're not going to come up with it on their own uh, there isn't the legal authority to they can do their own things and there's certain things they can do very well that will have minor impacts but in terms of a universal strategy for the United States it's never going to exist until it's prioritized by the federal government cabinet level uh, where there's an international champion that can pull the different departments together and 
have the kind of uh, advocacy necessary that working with uh, the existing membership organizations to promote uh, U.S. international education strategic elements to Congress that require congressional legislation and where they don't require less congressional legislation can make the changes and make the, make the decisions that can be carried out by the various departments that are really the implementers, the doers. So that's the hope that it can, if and when that ever does happen, we can celebrate uh, and shout it from the rooftops because that will sincerely make our competitors wake up and realize, oh, they finally got their act together in the U.S then they'll be worried. They're not right now, I guarantee you. Uh, let's uh, move on to quickly to our final question of the day. Which country is most important for the United States? Now, uh, we started the topic, uh, the session today about talking about China. And it can and should be one of the most important uh, markets for US in terms of our international education uh, strategy, uh, individually as campuses, uh, let alone a country. Uh, but it's one that you cannot ignore, uh, you should be engaged with, because there are things that, uh, hey, they're the largest nation in the world, one of the most uh, important economies in the world, that as President Xi, who's just elected to his third term last week, uh, may be headed to president for life uh, in China, or leader for life, uh, he, his uh, main goal is to, to uh, increase China's global influence. And they're doing that economically. They're doing that through BRI, which we've seen uh, many times uh, examples of that through uh, through the, uh, the roundup here. Uh, our understanding is that we need to we need to we need to have them. It's okay to be a friendly competitor, and I think ideally that's where we want to be moving to. But we know motivations aren't always uh, on that level from both sides. Uh, they may be from the U.S. side uh, in, in an idealistic world, but uh, uh, from from the Chinese side, they maybe not see things the same way. Uh, but that's what we need to get to. We need to get to point and we, we have to keep those lines of conversation open. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. But uh, my point uh, with, with it, the debate between India and China, and that's probably, probably what this is boiling down to for us in the United States, uh, is India more important than China now? And I think there's a couple different reasons that I think it is becoming that way. Uh, you see um, U.S. enrollment numbers, and there's an ISIF Monitor article that covers this well. Uh, you've seen how the U.S. Embassy in, uh, in India has opened up 100,000 visa appointment slots, slots for H and L workers. Uh, my dad came to the U.S. on an L visa. Uh, he was an intracompany transfer, and the vast majority of Indian workers that are in the United States now are on H's, H-1Bs. Uh, they make up the majority of H-1Bs issued uh, each year as well. So India, the signs are that India is going to be a much better partner for us. I, I talk about um, the overall impact of uh, numbers uh, in the United States, and the ISEF Monitor article had a link uh, to the Sevis by the Numbers report, um, and a, a report that no one was really expecting, because I asked in, in August at the EdUSA forum of the DHS rep, are we going to have another regular schedule of uh, see us by the numbers? Uh, it used to be a quarterly. Now it seems maybe once every seven, eight months. Uh, he said, no, the one we get sent out in May is going to be it for the year. And lo and behold, they released one in September. So that report uh, shows that of the currently enrolled F1 students, shows that there's only a 10,000 gap between China, which is still above India. Only 10,000 more enrolled Chinese citizen, uh, Chinese F1s 
in the United States, only 10,000 more than from India. So guaranteed within uh, the next year, uh, we're going to see India surpass China in terms of enrolled students in the United States. And thank you, John, for uh, your comments today on LinkedIn. Uh, glad you're part of the conversation today. So thanks for participating. Thanks for uh, your thoughts on, uh, on, on what, I've, what I've shared today. And as we do each week, uh, we close with just a, a, an appreciation for who you are and uh, uh, your role in uh, international education conversations here in the United States and abroad. Uh, next week, uh, we'll be, um, the 2nd of November, we'll be coming to you and uh, we'll be discussing next week's issues uh, that we'll be seeing live on, uh, uh, in our newsletter on Monday, and we'll be discussing those here with you on Wednesday. So until next week, we appreciate your time and wish you the very best. Cheers.